Hey everybody, welcome to the Week in Film Tech. This is the week of September 6th, 2019, and I'm here with Vedra going out of business, which is the big conversational news this week. Uh, a couple follow-ups on the Blackmagic Pocket that address some of the original issues I have, the Pocket 6K, that is... I'm also going to be covering a brand new Hey Professor that came from Twitter, and I'm going to be adding a new section this week, Gear Cage, where I'm going to do a podcast version of a gear review, and we're going to be talking about the SERP Genie 2 slider. If you're watching this on YouTube, yes, I will show you some stuff, but I'm going to try and talk about it for because the vast majority of our audience is on the podcast. I'm going to try and talk about it so you can enjoy it, you podcast listeners, whether or not you can see it in person on the YouTubes. All that this week on the Weekend Film Tech. All right, the top story this week on the podcast, sad news, Vedra has gone out of business. Who is Vedra, you say? All right, so a little bit of backstory. Back in 2011, 2012, you could buy really nice cinema lenses that cost a lot of money, or you could buy still lenses, some of which shot beautiful imagery. Uh, Canon L-series, I was always a bit mixed on, but like old Nikon is beautiful, and there's some old Canon glass that was really nice. I, I had like some aberration issues with Nikon L, uh, Canon L-series. Um Obviously, Canon makes great glass. I was just never an L-series fan. There was beautiful still photo lenses. But a still photo lens, $500 to $1,000, you didn't get. A, you had a clicky aperture. It went click, click, click. So you had to pay someone to de-click it because you want to be able to do smooth aperture pulls in cinema. And the focus would spin infinitely because the focus was designed to work with an autofocus system. And we wanted, in filmmaking, repeatable focus. There's a mark on it that says 8 feet, a mark on it that says 4 feet. I can pull them back and forth. And if you could put teeth on it, because older, older still lenses would do that. It'd be a very short throw usually because, you know, still lenses, it's not, you're not worried about repeatable focus, but it still did it. But with a newer still lens, it, it would just spin infinitely. So we wanted repeatable focus with gear teeth on these still lenses. And so there are all these services to like convert your still lenses over. And there were all these workarounds we had, but like Vedra was like, and a couple others, but Vedra were kind of one of the big ones who were like, why don't we just make thousand dollar primes for mft that have that and uh they were great i mean lensrentals.com did a shootout where they compared them to the uh zeiss cp2s again never a cp2s fan obviously zeiss super speeds and zeiss ultra primes and master primes supreme primes beautiful glass the cps the compact primes i was never a fan um and they weren't even that compact but cp2s versus vedra the vedra were a third the price and they and they beat it uh, on Lendrental's uh, test bench. So uh, they had a very successful Kickstarter in 2014. They expanded to a couple other market, like uh, they expanded to wider lenses, and you saw them sometimes on like little indie shoots. Uh, they were MFT Micro Four Thirds mount, which meant that they worked with like the GH5, the original Blackmagic Pocket, the Blackmagic Pocket 4K. They teamed with the Blackmagic Pocket 4K. You have a dynamite combination. Um, a couple things were working against them. As they went into 2019, we heard some, like, rumor... First off, in 2017, they had a huge theft. $200,000 worth of, like, lenses and lens components were stolen from their headquarters in Los Angeles. And I saw so many articles where, like, well, hopefully they're insured. And it's like, yes, insurance is wonderful. And when insurance works, it's great. I have never... I have never heard a story of someone being like, I had $200,000 insured and the insurance company insured that I got exactly the value I needed back. And they also compensated me for all the time I lost. Um, as wonderful as insurance is and insurance is great, you know, 
that was a bunch of lenses that were like about to be shipped out to people. That was a bunch of stuff that was probably in for repair. That was a bunch of parts mid-processing. Um, even if insurance paid out in full, and I'm sure there was a deductible, and I'm sure that deductible, 5 10%, still ten or $20,000, hurt. You know, a small business, $5,000 is huge. And that can be your margin one month. And uh, so I'm sure between insurance deductible and often, you know, insurance is going to want to appraise the actual current value of stuff. So if there was like a used lens set in for repair, say, that might count as $200,000. That might count as full value to the owner and to you, but the insurance company might say, actually, they bought that a year ago. It's only worth X, but you have to replace it with a brand new set. <laughs> so there, you know, that was probably not helpful, that theft. Uh, even if they have the best insurance company in the world, that's probably not helpful. Um, so a combination of the theft and then I think my, my other theory is full frame has really taken off in a big way in the last year and they didn't have full frame offerings. They did start to expand out to other lens mounts. They have Sony E-mount now. Um, but again, those Sony E-mount were designed for the smaller, uh, in film we call it Super 35 sized and still they call it APS-C sized or MFT sized. Fuji calls it X sized because... Fuji's Fuji. Shooting this on a Fuji. Love you, Fuji, but you're weirdos. And they even, working with Duclos lenses in LA, they were coming out with some X-mount. I was actually kind of tempted. I was like, am I going to try and get my hand on, like, some Vedras and X-mount? I might still. I'm, like, going to skim the eBay and see if a set appears. And then check the serial numbers to make sure it's not a stolen set. And, yeah, so those things were working against them. I'm sure they were working on a full-frame option. There have also been some rumors they were out of stock on some vendors earlier in the year and customer service started to get slow. And there were some conversations that like one of the founders was working for Takina also. Um, and, you know, people work for lots of different places. Maybe he was consulting for Consino. We don't know. But an announcement went up on the Facebook page over the weekend that Vedra is gone. Uh, that litigation between the founders is now such that Vader is being shut down. This is a bummer. Look, companies go out of business for all sorts of reasons. If the theft was a major problem, that's a real bummer. Yeah, partner founder drama. I mean, look, they make movies about founder drama. I just did a web series about founder drama. Founder drama is a real thing. Salty Pirate coming out this fall. It exists. I hope everybody moves on to successful careers wherever they land, unless anybody was a righteous asshole. If you're a righteous asshole, I hope... You were never in the film industry again. I don't know any of the inside story of the partner drama. Uh, I hope everybody was good people who are just trying to do the best for their careers and their customers. And and as the company grew, it just got too complicated. It's a shame, separate from all that, because I like more options in the mix. Uh, SLR Magic and Vedra making these like little affordable things help put pressure on the big guys to put things in this space as well. So even if you don't end up buying a Vedra, you might have ended up buying a lens inspired by the Vedra or competing with the Vedra. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah, so that is probably the thing that many people will be talking about this week uh, in a variety of offices is Vedra going under. Up next on the Week in Film Tech... So I talked about the Blackmagic Pocket 6K a couple weeks ago, and I actually had a long conversation at lunch with a friend of mine who's uh, yesterday was about to buy one. You know, she was like, I listened to your podcast, but I think I'm still going to buy one anyway. And I wanted to be clear, I'm not trying to talk to people out of buying one. I might still buy one. I think they're a great camera. I was just bummed it was EF mount. And now two solutions have come into that. So Luke Adapters has come out with an interesting thing that is a, it's a speed booster that goes in the EF mount. So it's still EF mount. But if you remember... The sensor size on the Pocket 6K is Super 35, which is a little smaller than full frame. Not as, like, small as Super 16, Super 35 sized. So you've got that smaller sensor, 
And what the speed booster does is it takes a bigger image and it squeezes it down and makes it brighter. So obviously the speed booster works when you've got like MFT to EF because you've got the room to fit it. The Luke Adapter Speed Booster goes inside the EF. And if you have a Canon EF Prime that's designed to cover full frame, because the EF actually was designed for full frame. You can make full frame EF lenses. They did. It was a full frame format originally, the 5D Mark II full frame camera. So if you had a 5D Mark II, those lenses could work on your Pocket 6K with this Luke Adapter Speed Booster that goes in the camera. So that's very cool. That's one thing that's already out. And then the other thing, Bezimod has come out with a PL mount adaptation. So, I, I mean, this is super fast. I can't believe how fast this is. I wonder if they had a pre-release model. Regardless, Pocket 6K, you take it, you buy the Bezimod adapter, and you put on the PL mount. Now, this is a big swap. This isn't like putting on a lens adapter. It is a conversion. It is Let's stop saying a PL mount adapter. It's a PL mount conversion for the Blackmagic Pocket 6K. But if you have a Pocket 6K and you want to shoot PL mount glass, you can take this and convert your Pocket 6K to PL mount for using all of the wonderful PL mount glass you do. That's from Bezimod. And it comes with a one-year warranty, which is actually kind of nice because taking taking the lens mount off your camera and putting another lens mount on makes most people nervous, makes me nervous. You can do it. I've done those kind of things. I've taken stuff apart. But like... Many people are nervous about doing those kind of things, and I think it's like a, a good thing to be careful about. So the fact that it comes with a one-year warranty is super nice. The third thing I wanted to shout out about Blackmagic, and I'm going to put this link in the email, the third thing about the Blackmagic Pocket 6K this week is Cinema 5D. If you don't read Cinema 5D, it's one of the big, you know, there's like five big sites we all read. Uh, Cinema 5D, if you don't read it, check it out. They did the nerdiest review of the Pocket 6K in the history of the mankind. Over under tests, over under correcting it back to normal tests, you know rolling shutter tests, all of the nerdy technical tests that I wish I had the time to do and that I, I'm glad somebody's out there doing for cameras were all done on the uh, 6K, the Blackmagic Pocket 6K test, and I will include a link to that in the email. But I think it's well worth taking a look at. The big takeaways for me, rolling shutter, unsurprisingly, in a $2,500 camera, is kind of bad. Not terrible. It's not like 2008 levels of rolling shutter. Rolling shutter, if you don't remember, is when you're handheld and the image gets jello-y because of the way the image is captured. Basically, what this is saying is you want to use it on a stabilizer, which, again, there's no internal image stabilization, so you probably want to use it on a stabilizer anyway. It's not like a handheld action camera. You're not going to shoot the Bourne Ultimatum with it. You're not going to take it up in a helicopter. It's not for this kind of thing. But there is some rolling shutter to be aware of was one of their things they noticed in their technical tests. And then they also noticed in their technical tests slightly wider latitude than the Pocket 4K and some really nice latitude results. They're getting like 11.9 stops of latitude. And, you know, this is a good time to remember whatever the marketing latitude is is nice. But it is the technically measured on benches latitude that matters to filmmakers. 11.9 is killer. It is scorching. For a $2,500 camera to have that kind of latitude and then shoot to Blackmagic RAW internal is really quite exciting. So that is all of the Blackmagic Pocket 6K news that came in over Labor Day weekend. And that is it for headlines this week. The gear cage. All right. I have no idea how podcast reviews are going to work, but we're going to try this. I've been playing with a unit for a couple of weeks now or a couple of months Sorry, Serp. Sometimes I'm slow on reviews because uh, I like to play with stuff really thoroughly. I've been playing with a unit called the Serp Genie 2. If you guys have been reading me for a while, you know, but two and a half years ago, I did a review of the Genie 1. In terms of this unit, what this unit is designed for doing is it is a motion... Motion control is a tricky word. 
Because you can look at like the $50,000 motion control units, which are like frame accurate down to a quarter of a degree. And you can do those like amazing super slow-mo shots where you do seven different takes of a burger coming together and you composite them together. We think of that when we think of motion control. But we also think of a lot of other things when we think of motion control. And there's a lot of shots. Like, for instance, did you guys know that the opening shot of Godfather Part 1 in 1972 was motion control. That long pullback where we open up on the baker and he's like, I believe in America, and the light fades up, and then it pulls slowly back until it's an over-the-shoulder-of-the-godfather. Computer-controlled motion control, using a tool that Gordon Willis had used on some um, commercial shoots. I think that was the first appearance of motion control in narrative. Motion control was also used in scenes in Star Wars. Like they had to do like 30 passes of some of those special effect shots in order to do like moving over a fake Death Star. And then they do another plate where we're moving over and we're like shooting fake lasers. And then we're going to composite them together. So motion control has those kind of applications. And it's been around for a really long time. And we're starting to see sort of affordably motion control-y applications. So SERP started, I would say that the, the Genie one wasn't really quite it was a time-lapse monster you could take it out in the field and you could set it up for beautiful time lapses and had a very nice interface and had good camera control and it was really good for that i i tested it a little bit for like motion control what you really want out of motion control is you can do two or three shots that are identical i can do it and i can do it again and it's identical and i do it again it's identical because if i have two or three takes that are identical but there's different stuff happening in front of the camera Like there's different special effects happening in front of the camera or different people in front of the camera. I can composite them together. That's what we're looking for. We're also looking for stuff like that Godfather thing where the shot is physically impossible for a human to operate. Some sort of like really slow pullback that a human could never do. Those are the things we're looking for in a motion control. The Genie 1 could do that stuff. It wouldn't have been my first choice on that. Uh, The Genie 2 is actually kind of an interesting step forward in a lot of ways. And there's a couple ways I wanted to talk about the ways in which the Genie 2 stepped forward over the Genie 1. First off, I'm going to compare this to the Emotomo a lot. The Emotomo is like two and a half times the price. I reviewed the Emotomo a year ago. I was very impressed with the Emotomo. It's like a $5,000 device. I think the SERP Genie 2, you can get around, get under two grand, maybe. I think it's like just a bump over. So it's two to two and a half times as much. The Emotomo is great. Belt-driven, big, bulky, you're pushing around a red camera. It is for a different price point. The Genie 2, coming in at sort of like the approachable indie price point, had a lot of really nice features that I thought were really interesting in my testing. So one major revision from the original Genie 2 to the Genie 2 is it's one unit now. It is way more compact. The original uh, Genie fit in much more of the piecemeal version of of time-lapse units you see a lot, where you're like, you're putting on a tilt motor, you're putting on a pan motor, you're hooking up a linear motor, you're running cables all between them. It didn't feel like the kind of thing you could just throw in a well-made backpack and go into the woods, even though you could throw in a well-made backpack and go in the woods, you'd always want like double of all the cables. Now, the Genie 2, it's an integral unit, right? Your pan and tilt is all in one sort of head. It looks not unlike a PTZR head, if you're familiar with those from like security cameras. I'm holding it up for the YouTubers, but the podcasters all describe it. It looks a little Star Warsy. Actually, Star Wars is coming up a lot in this conversation. Uh, it's got a little screen on the side, so you've got a little readout. It's got USB-C ports, and it's even got a little port for controlling your camera. It really, they want to control your camera through USB-C. That port for the old cable control, you're not going to be able to do as cool of stuff in terms of camera control. USB-C is the goal here, to use a USB-C cable to your camera. And then there's a linear, linear unit beneath it, and off to the side of the linear unit, a little cap stand that holds the string that pulls it back and forth. So bigger units like the Emitomo, they're belt-driven. You get the belt under tension. This is a string-driven unit instead of a belt-driven unit. And the string, the cap stand actually sticks out to the side of the unit so that the string doesn't go straight 
from one end to the other of your slider. It actually makes a triangle, right? If the string is rigged up in the center of your slider, as it usually is, it goes off to the side to go to the capstan, and then it goes back to the center of the slide on the other side. So it makes a triangle. That's one of my quibbles about the design, actually. We'll get to that. I have two notes about the design I want to get to later and sort of my criticisms. The other big thing you're getting out of the Genie 2 is they've majorly rethought the app. And this is actually the reason why I think I'm willing to go out on a limb and recommend... You know, I don't wholeheartedly... I don't say, like, I recommend this. I try and give, like, a balanced thing. The app is the thing that really made me be like, oh, this is a major step forward. Everybody else's app should be this good. Like all apps, it sometimes disconnects. Um, but what I really liked about the app is one of the problems, if you've worked with these kind of units before, is that the interface is very often, it feels very nineties. It's like, all right, you go to one end, you put one mark in, you go to another end, you put in another mark, and then you want to edit it. And you have to like, it's a text-based view a lot of the times. And you're like scrolling through settings and it doesn't feel like a UI that is designed by designers. It feels like a UI designed by engineers. The Serpentini 2 app is the first time I've been working on a unit where I was like, oh, Oh, this is designers. They've thought about this. These are filmmakers. It almost feels like a really nice UI. It feels nicer than the UI of some non-linear editing platforms for keyframing. So you can go in and you can add an additional keyframe. So you're like, oh, halfway through, I want it to pan up a little bit and then back down at the end. You can go in and you can adjust the easing, right? So if part of it, it's like you've set a couple keyframes and it's transitioning too quickly between them, uh, you can adjust the easing. So it eases into a keyframe, eases out. So you ease to the end of a stop, ease to the start of another, another position. So Really, the app makes it a more fully-fledged device. I used it in testing both on some time-lapse and some repeated shots. Look, if you're going to go super long lens on your repeated shot, you might not get the results you want out of this. I found good results, wider lenses, medium lenses, totally usable. Wider lenses, and I actually think as as much super long lens repeatable shots are very hard because the, de- the degree of precision is very high. Um, and frankly, I'll be honest... I don't do them very often. Every time I've done a motion control shot or that kind of thing where I'm like, oh, I want to composite these two people together. I'm always on like an 18 mil because I need room for both the actors to be in frame. I'm not going to 185 millimeter and trying to put three actors in the shot. It's never been the way blocking has worked out for me. Um, If you're trying to do that shot, if you've written something where you're like, yeah, and I'm going to be on a thousand millimeter lens or, you know, a Let's be real, because a thousand millimeter wouldn't fit on this thing. Because the weight limit is too low to put, like, a red on. This is, like, Panasonic SH-1, Sony. This is, like, your beefy cinema still cameras. I think you could squeeze an EVA-1 with a really light prime on it. But short of that, it's not a big, beefy cinema cam thing. But, you know, look, we're all seeing beautiful stuff. Blackmagic Pocket 6K is going to look great on this thing. You probably want to stick to a wider lens when you're doing your repeat shots. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube right now, you'll see a little demo video where I did one, two, three marks, and we ran through it three times. Now, this actually is on a longer lens. It's 135 millimeter um, lens that I use for this test, and it's actually really accurate, surprisingly accurate. Not surprisingly for SERP, surprisingly for anything at this price point, accurate. Um, but there's a little variation, and that variation, I actually don't think it's SERP's fault. I think... It is the fact that we're using 180-degree shutter, which is what we usually use in motion pictures. And the shutter being slightly out of sync because it's like, it's very rarely where like one frame is like a little off from another frame. I wonder if this is something, I suspect that SERP is currently, if they have a big enough dev team, working on more integrated camera control. 
a lot of modern cameras have USB-C ports. There's USB-C ports built into the CERT Mini. I wonder if there's going to be an update in the future where you get more integrated camera control so that the shutter is open at the same place in every part of the move. Because this is just a rolling video doing this shot on repeat. Um, and if the, the move starts not at the same exact point in the shutter open-close cycle, right? If the shutter's totally open when it starts its move in one shot and then the shutter's closed because the shutter's closed half the time and open half the time when it starts moving in the other shot, that could explain the very slight discrepancies we're seeing here. Now, not going to be a big deal on a wide-angle shot because very small discrepancies aren't going to be a big deal on a wide-angle because the, the camera's usually moving much shorter distances on a wide-angle because of the field of view. But on that longer lens shot, you're going to see that. Um, is that something, I mean, first off, you're not going to do a lot of super long lens motion control shots because they tend to be wider lens shots unless you're doing like product work. Um, I wonder if we're going to see SERP integrate some USB camera control stuff in the future. That is because they obviously do it for stop motion. So can they control it in motion? Or is this one of those things where I, you know, in the three days, uh, we used to deal with shutter sync issues a lot. And the biggest problem, every 3D manufacturer, the camera manufacturers, they were like, we would like to get the shutters in sync with each other, but the camera manufacturers won't let us. I wonder if this is one of those things where SERP is like, we got USB-C. We can plug into your camera. Just let us control your shutter timing. And I suspect my bet would be that the shutter timing is down to manufacturers to allow them to control that over USB-C or not. Regardless, it's mighty impressive. Like if you look at that little shot, it's impressive levels of repeatability for uh, the price point on 135 millimeter lens. It's also this specific example is high contrast black and white text. Um, I have a feeling the very minor stutters you are seeing if you were doing a shot where it's like three people talking to each other and you want you and you were doing like a moving shot of like a big wide room and there was set dressing and it wasn't a whiteboard, I suspect this is within the tolerance where it actually wouldn't be very noticeable. But that's why we do tests. We we do tests to set those situations up designed specifically to fail. And I feel like SERP did very well within the boundaries of this test. And I'm interested to see if we can figure out a way uh, to do video camera control more integrated from the SERP unit. Otherwise, I really love the compactness of the SERP unit. I love that it was all built into one little compact shape that I feel like I really could just pack it in a backpack properly and bring it in a charger and away we go. Um, so yeah, there were a lot of major, it was a major revision from the Genie to the Genie 2. I almost would have seen them giving it a new name. So there are three little notes that I wanted, or four, let's be honest. There's four little hiccups that I wanted to talk about in terms of giving it a full-fledged review. I was a little frustrated. So there are USB ports on here and you can charge it over USB, but there was no desktop app. You only could use a mobile app that I could find. Maybe there was someone on the website that could find a desktop app. And frankly, this thing is nice enough. I would like a desktop app that I could connect over USB. I suspect the reason why is because like, let's say you put it up on a 10 foot slider. Very few people have 10 foot USB cables. So I get that, but I would have liked to connect it to a desktop app because I actually had a lot of problems upgrading the firmware with the mobile app. I had to do it like 20 times to get it to work. It would up, it would turn on and it'd be like firmware upgrade needed and it would fail halfway through a lot. There's a note on their website. If you have a lot of radio interference where you are trying to do somewhere else, I had to move all over my office to do it. I finally found one spot through the window where it seems to work consistently. Um, that's far away from other sources of RF interference. So that's one thing to be very conscious of. I mean, if sir listens to this, please give us a desktop app for upgrading the firmware Two, And this isn't a niggle so much as it's a, this thing is now getting so good, I want other things. Uh, I would really love it if I could integrate at least one axis of focus, I resume. 
you know, focus hour zoom motors are becoming much more affordable. There's like that Kickstarter one for 200 bucks right now. There's, um, the iFootage from Moza, uh, Ronin. I mean, DJI has a very affordable one. Um, I would like it if SERP either made their own or if they interfaced with somebody else's. Cause like, for instance, the DJI one for the Ronin SC takes USB-C and there's USB-C ports on this. And it would be really great if I could program at least focus. If you get a virus in Zoom too, that would be great. If I could focus my move and a focus move altogether, that would rule. That's more being greedy. Um, honestly, if you'd told me 10 years ago that there would be something that did everything this does for $2,500 with such a nice app, I don't know that I, like, I would have been happy. But now it's 2019 and we want more. It's the hedonic treadmill. Battery life is actually pretty good. But there are these interesting batteries that don't match anything else. What I like is that it's USB-C charging. So, like, if you go on location and you forgot the SERP dedicated charger, you will have a USB charger. It's 2019. You'll probably have five of them. I would like it. I couldn't find on their website an external battery charger. Like, where I could buy six batteries and put all six of them charging in a battery dock would be really great. Maybe that's something that they are already working on. There is one thing about the, tr- the cap stand coming out to the side. Because the cap stand comes out to the side, the string makes a triangle. Because the string makes a triangle, the string gets tighter towards the edges and is looser when it's in the middle. Because the angle changes. And I found it took a, lot, a, a little more practice to set the string tension for the length of move I wanted than I thought it would. Because if you're pushing the move all the way end-to-end on your slider you're going to get some tension as you get closer to either end. Um, This is potentially something a firmware update could fix where it could change cap stand speed at either end, where it sort of, it would have to get a sense of where it is on the slider somehow. And I don't know how it would do that. Yeah. I don't know. I don't have a solution for you, SERP, but uh, I noticed that at either end of the move, I got some, like the string would be too tense because the cap stand was moving at the same rate it was moving in the middle. And I think there might be a fix there, or there might not. I, my workaround was I just made it a little slacker than I thought it would be. But I was always worried when I did that that I was getting inconsistent moves through the middle. So, yeah, that was the Serp Genie 2. Uh, I've been playing with it for a while. I'm going to do a full write-up, so you can also check out my full write-up. But I'm trying uh, a variety of things on this podcast to try and find the right format. Uh, let me know if you just want the new stuff. Or if the gear cage worked for you, uh, hit me up on Twitter or whatnot, because um, I have like four gear cages planned for the next four weeks of things I've been working with that I wanted to talk to you guys about. So if gear cage works, I will keep doing gear cage. But if gear cage doesn't work, let me know. Up next. Hey, Professor. Jamie H. Young asks, dear Professor. Dear Professor, very formal. Is it best practice to use a light meter to ensure video taken with different national, natural and artificial light is exposed using precise aperture shutter speed ISO so that matching color correcting is achievable? The light meter debate. The light meter debate is a big one. I know a lot of DPs who don't use them anymore. They're like, I get everything I need. You know, like right now I'm shooting to uh, Adam Shogun. You know, I can hit buttons and waveform pops up and vector scope. And, you know, I have all this digital data that shows me all this stuff about my image. That is really good information. So do I still need a light meter? But I also know a whole bunch of DPs. And I know some DPs who started in the digital era who shot their first frame in 2014 who still use light meters. So let's talk about why a light meter, I think, is still relevant in 2019. So first off, your question list is a bunch of things. But I don't tend... There are exceptions. For everything I'm about to say, there are exceptions. Mostly, you don't change ISO and shutter speed. You don't per shot. 
right? Usually I'm looking at a scene. All right, I'm shooting that exterior. I'm on the Vericam. I'm going to bump it to 5,000 native. I'm going to leave it at 5,000 native the whole night. It's not exterior. We did tests. We like the motion. We're going to put our shutter angle at 270 degrees instead of 180 because we like it and we want that extra half a stop of light. And then we're going to leave it there for the whole scene. So a light meter rarely tells me to change ISO. Every once in a while, a light meter is going to tell me like, ah, maybe I bumped the ISO up a little bit. Um, and there are DPs out there who do it a lot, but ISO and shutter speed tend to be the creative decisions made earlier before light meters pulled out. You're bidding a new job. You're at the creative stage and you're like, Ooh, what if we shoot this at 50 ISO and we get a really fine grained image and it's like super contrast and we overexpose it. Like those are decisions before you're even looking at light volume. You're talking about ISO and shutter speed because those affect the image quality so much that you really want to be making the choices that reflect your intent with the image there. So you list a lot of things that you can change with a light meter that a light meter can help you make decisions about. But I'm going to say often your ISO and your shutter angle or shutter speed decisions are so impactful to your image. You don't want to be making them based on the light value there. Although sometimes you have to. Night exterior, obviously I bump it up to 5,000. That's part of the deal. Unless I can afford the big, you know, but if a director is saying to me, I know it's not exterior, but I need really fine grain imagery here because it's this moment and it's about like clarity then I, we talk to the producers and we see if we can get big enough lights that we can shoot. I mean, I don't know that I would shoot 50, but like, you know, 500 or something finer grained. So I have less noise. Or then I'm talking to the post team about noise correction. ISO and shutter angle, not decisions a light meter often dictates. The exception being every once in a while you're shooting like day exterior and the sun's going down and you're like, you get your light meter out to be like, do I still have exposure? And this is a great example where... Your Shogun and Fergo, your small HD, your Flanders, your actual tectonics hardware scope, anything that's giving you a real waveform monitor can give you good information on exposure. But remember, all of that is giving you data on the final video result. If you're shooting Blackmagic Pocket 6K, that's a raw camera, which means it's recording data to the sensor, to your file, and then it's taking that data that is recording to the file, your raw data, and it's creating a video signal out of that that's smaller and pumping that out to your monitors and all of that external information. So when I'm down here hitting my little waveform monitor on my Shogun Inferno go, that's analyzing my video signal. And on the Fuji X-H1, that's fine because it doesn't shoot raw. On a raw, you might actually have more info there. So if you really know your raw file well, if you've worked with a particular camera a bunch and you've taken it through all your tests, yeah, there is a scenario where you might be standing at the beach and your monitor is coming in really dark but you've got your light meter out and you see what your light meter is reading and you say, actually, yeah, let's bump the ISO. I know what this camera can do. Uh, also, let's remember that ISO doesn't change the signal to a raw camera. When you change ISO on a camera, it boosts the signal coming off the sensor digitally. But uh, a raw camera, you can change the ISO in post almost always. So again, ISO, separate conversation. So if that's all the stuff you don't do with a light meter, what do I still do with a light meter? Why do I still have a little case with a light meter and a color meter that I take to set? Well, because lighting is a decision-making process, and I need the information from a light meter to help me make decisions on set, often about light volume, right? At this point in history, almost every light has a dimmer built into it. I mean, obviously, we're, you know, you might still be working with like an ulnary kit where you can bring out dimmers, but, you know, affordable LEDs, expensive LEDs, anything, you know, HMIs, they've all got dimmers built in. So you're setting light volume a lot. And, you know, uh, yes, sometimes the camera has arrived on set and the camera's arrived on set and it's hooked up to monitor. But even when it's hooked up to monitor, sometimes 
there's not room at monitor. You don't want to wander over to monitor. So the ability to be out there next to the unit, having your light meter out, and you're out there with your light meter and the best electrics over at the unit, and you're like, turn it up, turn it down, is really useful as you try and place all your lighting values within the exposure range you're planning for the scene. So that's a place where light meters are still really useful. Light meters are also still super useful for pre-lighting, right? Yes, sometimes on a pre-light you have a camera. It's weird. I just watched a behind-the-scenes video uh, where they did the pre-light with a Blackmagic Ursa Mini, and then they brought in an Alexa Mini for the shoot. And I really want to see. They didn't include any of the pre-lit footage from the Ursa Mini. But it's interesting because, like, they wanted a camera live where everybody could look at the monitor because people are used to looking at the monitor to evaluate their lighting now. So I thought that was really fascinating. Maybe someday we'll have the budget to have the Alexa Mini at the pre-light, although I doubt it. They're an expensive rental. But we're getting to that place where it's nice to have that image, but you, you seldom have your A camera at the pre-light. So you want to be able to walk into a pre-light stage and you've talked to the DP and you know, okay, we're probably going to shoot the scene around a four because we're shooting around a four. We're going to, and we want those windows hot, but not too hot. We want to bring in like an eight through the windows. We want to bring in an eight through the windows. We set up some units outside the windows. I'm presuming we're on a stage here. I get out my light meter to set intensity on those units. So the light meter is really good for pre-lighting. The light meter is really good for like really dialing in key exposure on a set. And it's also really good for checking out things like key fill ratios. Key fill ratios are very hard to see on a waveform monitor. The key fill ratio, like if you're watching this on YouTube, the key side of my face and the fill side of my face, the ratio between the two, how bright is the bright side and how dark is the dark side. And the ratio indicates a lot about the mood of an image and how it's going to translate to an audience. So you want to measure key fill ratios. Hard to do on a waveform monitor, super easy to do with a light meter. Now, in terms of setting aperture, you are sometimes setting aperture with light meter in the digital era. Aperture is often being set with the waveform monitor, like looking at your video image. It's also often being set ahead of time. You know, it is not uncommon for a DP to be like, we're shooting this scene at a 2.8. And then you use light meters and waveform monitors to set your light values to match your intended aperture because they want the depth of field at 2.8 dictates. And the other thing in this is that even because aperture is creative and shutter speed is creative and ISO is creative, often we're stacking NDs. And we're using NDs to actually set exposure. NDs are neutral density filters that affect how much light is making to the lens because that's the most neutral way, although heavy NDs can still bring up a color cast. All right, Jamie, I hope that answered your question. You can always reach out to me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram with more questions for Hey Professor. Follow me on the Weekend Film Tech and I will include links to all the things. So there's a mailing list at weekendfilmtech.com where I include links to all the things I talked about this week. And you can subscribe anywhere you subscribe to podcasts or on the YouTubes. Hit me up. Let me know if you think Gear Cage works or if Gear Cage needs a revision if we need to clean the gear cage up. And uh, be sure to tell your friends. We're trying to grow the audience. This is designed to be the podcast with like all the basic information that you need to keep up with on film tech while you're too busy shooting movies. All right. Thanks a lot. Have a good one. Mm-hmm.